Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It is Maddie and Ethan with another episode of the Thine to Mind podcast. That's right, folks. And on this episode of the podcast, Maddie and I are going up to the Pacific Northwest to the Willamette Valley. Hope you enjoy What's up, Maddie? Hey, Ethan. How we doing? I'm good. How you doing? Pretty good. I'm a little chilly right now. Mm-hmm. Um, folks, we are, no joke, we are in the middle of a wine cellar recording this right now. It's our new studio. It is. I am wrapped in a blanket and I have my winter coat on. <laughs> it's not studio by choice, but maybe one day we will have a nice, shiny new studio. Well, on my way up to work this morning on 29, um, did you see the same thing I saw on the right in Oak? Oakville, it was sheep, the sheep all over the vineyard. Oh my goodness, Ethan. It's crazy. I, you know, this is my, what, like my fourth year out here, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been out here. I've seen a good amount of like the growing seasons. I've never seen this many sheep before. Every once in a while, I'd see like one or two in a vineyard. But holy cow, there's been so many sheep. It's the coolest thing. I mean, we're faced with a lot of trials and tribulations out here. And we see a lot of cool things and a lot of kind of scary things. But seeing something like that, it's so simple. Just a bunch of sheep eating grass in a vineyard. I don't know why that's so aesthetically <laughs> uh, pleasing to me. I mean, I had a great drive this morning and just kept thinking about it. Like being a sheep, it's just great. It's a great life. You get to eat everything. They're pretty much living the life. I know. Yeah. I always feel like I drive into a fairy tale once I hit the ag preserve, like yeah. an oak knoll area. But then especially when you add sheep on top of that, it was just like, where am I right now? And it's such a cool way of maintaining your vineyard and not even just vineyard, your land in general is having, you don't have to hire people to do this. You don't have to do this yourself. I mean, there's literally companies that rent out their sheep. Talk about a business plan. I wish I came up with that. They just have hundreds, even thousands of sheep and they'll just rent them out for the day. And all they'll do is just walk around and eat basically everything, but your grapevines in your vineyard. I know they, yeah, their sheep have like a daily rate, don't they? <laughs> I, I read between like 16 cents per sheep and then like, 30 to $40 per acre. But I mean, I was looking at a bunch of different mm. websites on this because I mean, as soon as I walked in this morning, I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. We got to <laughs> talk about that. No, for sure. And Ethan, I think it's, you know, while we're talking about this, sheep are very sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. And after, you know, the, the second half of the 20th century here in the United States, especially, we started seeing a shift more towards conventional viticulture. And this was trying to cut costs, cut labor costs and using more mechan- mechanization and pesticides and herbicides and whatnot. And I think we finally realized that, yeah, while this might boost production, it also has a lot of other negative effects. And so you're seeing this shift back to sustainability. And I think we're we're seeing that firsthand right now. I just love how the environment works together. You know, that's a big thing I know in like with biodynamic viticulture is that you try to have two aspects, two elements of agriculture of the environment to work together in unison. So, you know, the sheep, they're hungry. What do they do? They eat all the cover crop that you want to get rid of. Some of your pruning, even some of your younger shoots, they actually help with your next harvest, which I think is hilarious, but also awesome at the same time. And then you know what they do after they eat? They fertilize the soil. They also compact the soil. It's like it's like all working together. I love that kind of stuff. Who knew the sheep are so talented? Yeah, the same thing with like rose bushes. You see them. They help with like you know inviting predatory insects, um, just different ways. Like I know there was one winery I went to that had cats. They were training all their kittens mm-hmm. to hunt. 
because I know a big issue for vineyards are rats and rodents and whatnot, field mice. Um, so you train cats to hunt, and they'll go out in the nighttime and they'll hunt and take care of all the mice for you. You know, the mustard is in full bloom right now, too. You know, putting nitrogen back into the soil, that's so pretty and also very useful. I know a lot of people come out here during harvest, but this is one of the most Instagram-worthy times of the year. You know, beginning of the year, January, February, March, where all the mustard's growing. And out here, you know, we don't get a lot of rain. This is our rainy season. We pray for more and more rain every single day. But once it rains, it's still beautiful. But after, everything is so green. It's mm-hmm. so vibrant. Mm-hmm. I know. I I really love this time of year. I kind of wonder, like, okay, we have sheep here in Napa. I bet you they're over in Sonoma. Um, I wonder what other regions they have. I'm like, up in Willamette, maybe? And that's what we're talking about today. So, Willamette Valley. I mean, is it Willamette? Willamette? It's Willamette, damn it. <laughs> there you go. That's a great way to remember it. Actually it actually took me a while to get that down initially. And I didn't come up with that term. I've, I've heard that from a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people, folks. Uh, if you know, if you are the one that created that term, please let us know. Um, that being said, yeah, Willamette Valley, some fantastic wines, of course. It's sort of known for one variety in particular, and that's Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. But let's let's dive into Willamette Valley before we get to the, the wines and the styles. We're going to talk about where it is. So, of course, we're going up to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's not just known for a lot of rain, a lot of hipsters up there, but we're really just south of Portland. And we're really only just you know 50 miles off the coast of the Pacific Ocean. So, obviously, there's a little bit of influence there. But hence the name, it is a valley, and it lays in between the Cascade Mountain Range, which, of course, is a big environmental influence to the wines coming from Washington State as well, and then the Coastal Range as well. It's going to make this valley, and it is a beautiful valley. Yeah, Ethan, it really is. I was able to go up there, I guess, man, it's been been like a year and a half or so now. I went up for a friend's wedding, and we stayed in Portland, so Portland is fun. And the nice thing about Willamette is that it's really not too far away. Um, you can start driving in you know, like 15 minutes and you're already seeing vineyards, but the Willamette's pretty large, so you can drive quite some time and it's just vineyard after vineyard. So kind of like here in the Napa Valley. And this is, I mean, it's a it's a young wine growing region. And the history really dates back to the 60s, right? Where there's a guy named David Lett who came into town. Exactly. David Lett is going to be kind of like a legend or a pioneer for the Willamette Valley. But if we look at winemaking history in Oregon, the first winery was actually established in 1873, and it was not in the Willamette. It was actually in the Rogue Valley. And in Oregon in general, it wasn't known for vineyards, wasn't known for winemaking uh, for a while. They actually had a lot of apples, a lot of apple trees, which you know I love, uh, hazelnuts, and even Christmas trees. Oh, you love holidays too. <laughs> I, yeah, it sounds like Oregon's a perfect fit for me. Yeah, it's funny that you live out in California. Now, you said apples. You think they apples for consumption or for cider? I think probably a lot of cider, but I know what you're thinking right now. Some brandy? <laughs> you, well, you love your Calvados. I love my Calvados, the paid dog. Yeah, so hey, Ethan, one way to find out. Well, might as well make another trip <laughs> up there. Let's do a little road trip. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to do some more videos up there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so you mentioned that this man named David Lett, though, and he was really the first one that saw the future and the potential for the Willamette Valley. And David Lett, he's, a, he's originally from Utah, and he decided that he wanted to go to dental school in the early 1960s. He was going to go to school in San Francisco. And while he was in the Bay Area, he happened to visit the Napa Valley. And I guess you could say he had kind of that wine epiphany. Um mm-hmm. I think you and I've kind of experienced something similar. We've all had one of those, yeah. A lot of us in the industry have, and he decided 
Now, what am I doing? Why do I want to become a dentist and clean wine stains off of people's teeth when I can just be the winemaker myself? So we actually decided to go to school and learn a thing or two about viticulture and winemaking at UC Davis. And then in 1966, he was the first one to plant Pinot Noir up in the Willamette Valley, up in the Dundee Hills area. He planted a couple thousand vines. And he really saw the potential here and thought, you know what, this place has a cool region. We're going to talk about this later and how it kind of is similar almost to places that you might find in Burgundy. So let's try it out here. And so David Lett was the first one to plant um, Pinot Noir there. You know, as much as I would love to be a dentist, I'd rather (laughs) be a winemaker. You know, it's funny. Every time I go to the dentist out here, they keep saying, you know, do you drink a lot of wine? You've got some stains on your teeth. Well, no, duh. I live in wine country. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I know. At one point, uh, they asked me, do you drink any coffee, tea, or wine? I was like, I normally have all of the above before 10 a.m. So <laughs> absolutely. Not all of it drinking. You know, some of it's just tasting, of uh-huh. course. Nobody get worried out there. Um, but regardless, Oregon had still not really taken off in the wine industry um, or the Woodlamette Valley specifically. And in fact, a lot of producers that were popping up you know, they were just were using barns that they had found to make their wine, and it wasn't anything really that special. But um, Sokol Blosser was an um, individual who actually was the first one to create a winery specifically for wine making. And so this was kind of the start of, all right, this is going to be the future of the wine industry, the future of the Willamette Valley wine industry. You know, that's actually one of my epiphany wines. Is I it have, really? I've had a lot, but <laughs> I worked at a restaurant when I was much younger. And they actually, one of the wines we had was the Sokol Blosser Evolution Blend. Oh, okay. I've like, read just, a lot about yeah, that. I was just like a new person in the just drinking in general. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. So I had a bottle on Valentine's Day with my girlfriend. I've never have had it since. <laughs> hey, Valentine's Day is right around is the corner. Good. It is around the corner. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. That is really cool. Um, I'd love to try it sometime. And at this point, Ethan, we are reaching the late 1970s. So in 1979, there was this event called the French Wine Olympics. The Wine Olympics? They (laughs) called it the Olympics? They did. I think I'd go gold. (laughs) I think you would, honestly. (laughs) Maybe they just need blind tastings or whatnot. And what's the deal with the French that they keep having these dang wine competitions? Because I know how this one ends, too. (laughs) We're going to have to keep trying. They will. They will. So... Where I'm going at and where you guys can probably think where I'm headed is that um, a wine from the Willamette Valley, the um, the Erie Vineyards Pinot Noir, what That's we are what we're drinking. Yeah, it is what we're tasting right now. It's really tasty. Um, this actually placed second in the competition um, and only lost by two tenths of a point to some Chambou Musumi. Two tenths of a point? Exactly. They're so, that particular with their point system there? Supposedly. Wow. But either way, I mean, you're comparing this to, you know, some of the best, the best Burgundies. Absolutely. And now the Willamette Valley is put on the map, just like that happened in Napa Valley just a few years prior. And so now people can start taking the wines from this region more seriously. And then just a few years later in the, um, in the 1980s, 1983, Willamette Valley became an ABA. So that's only a couple of years after Napa Valley was. Yeah, exactly. So um, it was right up there and um, seen as a premier Pinot Noir growing region. And then in the mid early 2000s, um, I think starting in 2005, mm-hmm. they started creating the sub ABAs and they created six kind of right off the bat. Okay. And then in the last couple of years, we've seen a few more. So right now there's a total of nine different sub ABAs within the Willamette Valley. Yeah. The most recent ones were accepted last year, right? Laurelwood and Tulatin. 
Yep, I think so. That's cool. Yeah. I actually haven't had a wine that's designated from one of those areas yet. So It'd be fun to do an AVA tasting, kind of like we do here in Napa. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. I have a friend that works up there. Maybe I'd, I can get her to send us a few bottles. Sure. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So yeah, as Madison said, now it's split up into nine American viticultural areas. But Willamette Valley in general is a very large wine-growing region. I mean, two-thirds of the production of wine made in Oregon is coming from the Willamette Valley. And don't get me wrong, folks. I mean, yes, this episode is on the Willamette Valley, but there are also some fantastic wines that are coming from other regions outside the Willamette Valley, like Rogue Valley, Umqua Valley, even Columbia Gorge. There's some great wines that are coming out of Oregon. But right now, of course, we have to focus on the OG, and of course, <laughs> that is the Willamette Valley. So Willamette Valley is about 150 miles long. Put that in comparison to Napa Valley, where it's only 30 miles long. That's five times the length. And then Willamette Valley is about 60 miles wide. Very large region. So it's understandable that why they have split it up into nine different sub-AVAs. And I can almost assure you that there'll probably be some more in the next decade that are be splitting up. Because there's so many different soil series, different aspects and elevations. Uh, it's such a unique area that makes some... Fabulous wines. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of said it there. It is a pretty large area too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much larger than Napa Valley. And they don't have quite as many vines um, in Willamette as they do here in Napa. They have about 25,000 acres of vineyards planted there. Whereas yeah. here in Napa, we're like at 44,000. Just to mm-hmm. put it into perspective for all of you guys. And so because of that, like you're saying, there is going to be more diversity in the land and the different spaces. Um, and I think they're still figuring out you know, what regions produce certain styles of wine and just figure out the best vineyard sites too. But all in all, there's over like, or almost 700 different wineries. So there's a lot of producers. And the cool thing about this too, is that a lot of them are still family owned and operated as well. Yeah. There's a lot of values associated with that because really, as you mentioned with the history of this great wine growing region is that there was only about 10 families that started out here. You know, you you, made, you mentioned David Lett and the Sogoblossers. There's also like the Ponzi's, uh, the Outerheims that, you know, they all came together because they're starting this brand new wine growing region that hasn't really been discovered before. It's really in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Northwest. They all had to, you know, come together, all this camaraderie to figure out how to establish this region. It's great that they picked Pinot Noir. I know, you know, a lot of them were graduates of, you know, UC Davis and other enology programs. So they studied the soils and the climate and thought, you know, Pinot Noir will grow well here. But then they had to rely on each other to find particular yeast strains, particular clones of the varieties they want to plant, as well as barrels. Yeah, absolutely. All of the above. Um, and just working together, that'll kind of bring up the entire um, the entire valley itself. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the the climate, the geography, why this region um, is so blessed and why it is such a great wine growing region. Um, and so like you said, it's not too far away from the Pacific Ocean. So you're going to get that nice marine influence. But we're going to have, you know, essentially the, the coastal range is going to block a lot of those strong Pacific storms that would be coming right off of the coast. So it's this land is already protected right there because of that. But then on the other side of the valley, so on the other side of the Willamette River, we have the Cascade Mountain Range, which is going to also, you know, allow for much more mild weather, more temperate weather within mm-hmm. this valley. Because if you were to go on the eastern side, you're going to have much harsher um, weather throughout the year. And so here you're going to have somewhat warm days, but you're going to have these really cool nights. So overall, it's, you know, it's considered a, a region one cool climate. Okay. So 
that's why we always say this is a good place for Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is a thin-skinned grape. It does well in cool climates. Think of like Champagne or even Burgundy. Um, and so there's a reason that we plant grapes such as this in this area here. And for those who have been up to the Pacific Northwest, you know that it rains a lot yeah. up there. And especially in this area, in the Willamette Valley, it rains a majority of the year. But in those key growing months of like June, July, August, and September, it's relatively dry. Mm-hmm. It allows Pinot Noir to fully ripen. And of course, that that large diurnal shift that you mentioned really helps maintain that acidity and keeps that liveliness of Pinot Noir. Yeah, exactly. And you said, yeah, it, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't rain very much for most of the, the growing days. Yeah. But then you start reaching the fall, and I'm not going to lie, the Willamette Valley sometimes has its challenges in the fall. Absolutely. Um, whether, you know, you have start rain that starts coming through. I know they've recently experienced some fires, too. But, um, you know, something I found was interesting, going back and reading a bit about this, in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. And so... That was actually, there was actually a lot of volcanic ash that fell all over the vineyards. And so there's a lot of studies done about the impact of volcanic ash Mm -hmm. in your juice or your grapes or whatnot too. So they definitely had their fair share of challenges. But when you have that perfect vintage, Ethan, the wines are just beautiful and they really speak for themselves. I mean, that's standing out on the glass that's in front of me right now. Yeah. The beautiful wine. And that you mentioned volcanic and actually uh, there's a soil series called Jory that's Mm -hmm. around like the Dundee Hills. So like the central northern part of the Willamette Valley and that volcanic soil really emphasizes that nice floral, earthy and red fruit character. And the wine we're having is actually the Erie Vineyards is grown in Dundee Hills. And I get that. I mean, those three characteristics I just named that really stands out in this glass here. And then, Ethan, there's one other soil type that we should probably mention, too. There's, I mean, obviously, there's a ton throughout the Willamette, but one mm-hmm. other one that's very notable is the Willikinsey. Yeah. And this is one that's really prominent in the Ribbon Ridge sub-AVA. They kind of say it's more elegant than the jewelry, uh, the wine styles are. Yeah. However, the wine in our glass right now, I would say, is very elegant. So um, who knows, really? But um, another one that you're probably going to find a lot throughout Willamette. But, I mean, that, that does it for, I guess, the geography and the geology of this place. We've talked about Pinot Noir a lot, everybody. Um, it's nearly two-thirds of all the plantings throughout the Willamette Valley. And one thing that you're going to hear a lot when you are tasting Willamette Pinots is that it is kind of like the new world or the U.S.'s stepping stone to France, whether that is um, in Burgundy. You know, it has a similar climate almost to Alsace as well. Yeah. But a lot of people will compare the Willamette Valley Pinots to that of Burgundy but with the U.S. twist on it. Yeah, I mean, it, it has this elegance that you'll get from a Burgundian Pinot. Of course, Burgundy has a lot more of that, like, black tea, mm-hmm. earthy characteristics. And there's a little bit in this wine that we're drinking as well and in other Willamette Pinots that I've had. But, of course, it's like a good middle ground because, you know, the ones that you're getting out of Sonoma, Russian River, Sonoma Coast, I mean, those are also could be softer styles of Pinot Noir. They're typically more on the right, the overripe characteristic or condition of the fruit. Um, some of them, especially from the Russian River, could be a little bit powerful in terms of its aromatics. This is a little bit more subtlety to it. But on the palate, it's got a lot of structure. And not structure as in like it's tannins, but it's got round mouthfeel. It's a little bit more weight. But I get this nice herb, like herbs de Provence kind of character from the wine too. I love it. I don't drink enough of these. I've had a fair share. I don't drink that often. But having this with you and talking about this really makes me want to go out and taste more. Yeah, absolutely. You and me both. And I, I would say this wine here, um, and you know, kind of key characteristics of a lot of Willamette Pinots, it's going to be 
You know, it's going to have that cranberry, that raspberry, maybe a little rose, like you said, mm. the herbs provence. But you also get the slight bit of earth that you might not get quite as much if you were down, you know, in California or in Sonoma for that matter. And also because it is cooler, you'll see that the wines typically have a little bit lower levels of alcohol too. Um, now one thing, yeah, comparing it to Burgundy, unless you're drinking Grand Cru, um, as if you're paying, you know, for a similar price point here in the U S the wine's probably gonna have more Oak on it, I would say as well. Um, so that's one way to kind of a little telltale between Willamette and Burgundy as well. Yeah, of course. And, And this, this is a little sappy. It's got a little like forest floor kind of character to it. Um, almost like a piney kind of character. And yeah, there's a lot of I piney see that. there too. I love um, that. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful wine. But besides Pinot Noir, which of course is what made Willamette Valley Willamette Valley, mm-hmm. there's also some other great varieties, you know, grown out there. I know we've had some Pinot Gris out there. Yeah, there's uh, quite a bit of that. Of course, and just like any other region that grows Pinot Noir well, what's its a counterpart? You're going to have Chardonnay. Chardonnay. <laughs> and honestly, there are some Chardonnays that are getting built really high accolades that are you know made in the Willamette Valley, I'm sure we're going to start seeing a lot more in the next few years. You know, we did have somebody um, down here visiting from the Willamette Valley, and they were saying that there's more and more Chardonnay that's being planted in the area. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Everyone loves Chardonnay, right? Um, but you're also going to see some Pinot Blanc, Riesling even, too. Yeah. Um, so some, you know, really interesting ones. Some sparkling wine. Whenever you see Chard and Pinot, there's always some sparkling wine. And you know what I also did? Did see. I've never tried one, but I did see a little Sauvignon Blanc growing up there too. Oh well, I guess we're gonna have to go up there now. <laughs> I think Isn't so. Right, <laughs> yes. So guys, um, I think it's safe to say that Ethan and I were very impressed with the wines that we've been tasting from the Willamette. We really hope you guys enjoy some wine from up there, and hopefully, when all is said and done, we can go make a trip up there very soon. I love it. So I think we should talk about our our nightcap. And we got a fun one this week. We have a very fun one. So Maddie and I were able to stumble upon a grape <laughs> called Saparavi. And I really hope I'm pronouncing it right. Now, Sounds good to me. It does. Yeah. Thank you. Well, if you haven't heard of Saparavi before, it is actually a grape that is native to the Republic of Georgia. And it's actually a unique grape variety because it's one Tenturier grape. Now, that so, was a CWE question right there. That was. Know what, a, know what a Tenturier is. And uh, it's just a fun grape to, you know, term to say i know maddie hears me say it all the time but um those who don't know what it is well of course there's thousands of different grapes that are registered for winemaking in the world 99 percent of them are gonna if you you know they could have the thickest most purple skin you can find you squeeze the inside guess what color the juice is i mean why clear it's, it's clear well tenturier grapes actually have mutated to have pink pulp and pink juice on the inside and, you know, another popular one is Chamborsin, Alicante Boucher. And a lot of times, it'll bring a lot of character to the wine. Um, you will find them grown by themselves every once in a while. But they're really added to a wine to add more color, to add more body, and more tannin to the wine, if that makes sense. Saparavi is another Tenturier grape. Now, we mentioned that it's it's grown in the Republic of Georgia, but the <laughs> one that Maddie and I found is grown in the Rhone Valley of France. Um, this, this one is also unfiltered, and there's no sulfur no added to sulfur it. No sulfur So it's, um, to say it's unique is not saying enough, but it's a fun wine, and I'm glad we found it. No, for sure. And Ethan, I think it's because it's a Tenturi especially, the color was very clear in the glass. It was it was dark. And I also think mm-hmm. there was a little bit of carbonic on that as well because it kind of had that like kind of like bright ruby purpley color Absolutely. to it as well. But um, I think right off the bat, I mean, it was some like Morello cherry, like cherry liqueur mm-hmm. and almost like the Sinise quality, but um, very poppy as well. It's a fun wine. 
it was fun. You know, it wasn't um, extremely tannic by any means, but mm-hmm. it had moderate acidity. And so just really kind of an easy drinking wine. I was able to take some home and have a glass with dinner. And lately I've been on this big Mediterranean kick and I already had these like Mediterranean or like Turkish meatballs. I had a harvest bowl with it. It's actually really nice. You need to start bringing more food into work. <laughs> I brought cookies in today. Yeah, but what am I going to pair with that? I'm <laughs> open up some kind of sherry or something. I'll or work on that for you. Thank you, Madison. Well, yeah. So the learning lesson with this one, folks, if you're not able to find a Saparavi at your everyday local shop, um, just know that the term tenturia exists, of course. And that is a grape that's mutated to have pink flesh, which is just so different. But, you know, it's fun. It's fun to try these new things that you don't see every single day. If you find something that's kind of odd and you're like, oh, I've never seen this before, go ahead and get a bottle and try it. And maybe even share with us what you had. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Um, if you find a soft ravi, you gotta let us know. But um, also, please uh, drink some more Pinot. And continue to listen to the Vine to Vine podcast. <laughs>